and we will read through the whole of chapter 2 and chapter 3. I volunteered to read this before I'd looked at the passage. (laughs) Let's read God's word. Now there were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvi, Rehum, and Barna. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172, the sons of Sheftiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 775, the sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 945, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Benai, 642, the sons of Bebe, 623, the sons of Asgad, 1,222, the sons of Adonaikam, 666, the sons of Bigvi, 2,056, the sons of Aden, 454, the sons of Ata, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Bazai, 323, the sons of Jorah, 112, the sons of Hashem, 223, the sons of Gibar, 95, the sons of Bethlehem, 123, the men of Netophar, 56, the men of Anathoth, 128, the sons of Asmaveth, 42, the sons of Kiriath-Arim, Chepharah, and Beeroth, 743, the sons of Rama and Geba, 621, the men of Michmas, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 223, the sons of Nebo, 52, the sons of Magbish, 156, the sons of the other Elam, 1,254, the sons of Harim, 320, the sons of Lod, Hadid and Ono, 725, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Sinar, 3,630, the priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Emir, 1,052, the sons of Pashur, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalem, the sons of Ata, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shabai, in all, 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tebeoth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Shehai, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanar, the sons of Hagabath, the sons of Acub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shemaili, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Riah, the sons of Rezin, and the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pesiah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Minunim, the sons of Nephizim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sezira, the sons of Tamar, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hitapha. The sons of Solomon's servants, 
the sins of Satai, the sins of Hesafreth, the sins of Peruda, the sins of Jalar, the sins of Darkan, the sins of Gedel, the sins of Shephatiah, the sins of Hatil, the sins of Pekaroth, Hezebaim, the sins of Amai. All the temple servants and the son, and sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following are those who came up from Tel Malar, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Aden, and Emir, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there could be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some, heads, uh, some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the beginning month, in the second month, sorry, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to, to, to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, and Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, 
with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. But the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The Three Little Pigs is a famous fairy tale about three pig brothers who all want to be architects, but only one of them is really qualified for the job. You see, the classic story goes that three pigs build a house out of straw, out of sticks, and out of bricks. And the big bad wolf comes along and tries to blow each of the houses down so he can have a tasty meal. You see, the wolf approaches the first house made of straw and huffs and he puffs and he blows the house down. The first pig brother runs to his other brother's house after quickly losing his very messily constructed straw house and enters his brother's house made of sticks. The big bad wolf, of course, follows to the second pig's house, hoping to blow this house down as well to double the size of his meal. Of course, the big bad wolf huffs and he puffs and he blows the second house down, causing both of the brothers to run to their last brother's house made out of carefully laid bricks on a really firm foundation. You see, when the big bad wolf comes for this third time, he decides, oh my gosh, I could have bacon with every meal for the next month. So he tries to blow down this third house made of brick. He huffs. And he puffs, and not a single brick is moved from its resting place. Because this third pig, who built the brick house, put some intentionality and effort into the construction of his home. So when the wolf tried to destroy what he created, his house stood firm as it was supposed to. You see, this simple children's story has been around for hundreds of years, and that's for a really good reason. What this story does a great job of illustrating is that intelligent and practical hard work in life pay off in the coming years. Two of the three brothers decided that they were going to be pretty lackadaisical and not really think about how they were going to construct their house. So when trouble came, their work did not hold up. But, the, uh, but on the other hand, the third brother who carefully constructed his home, knowing that trouble would eventually come, he was able to stand in his home secure through the trial that eventually came his way. This is because careful consideration of important work helps establish lasting fruitfulness. While on the other hand, careless consideration of important work leads to imminent destruction. You see, tonight, as we jump into the book of Ezra, as we jump back in for the second time, we will see that these principles were intimately known by the returning exiles. You see, a couple of weeks ago, we started a new series in the book of Ezra 
where we really set the stage for what is going to happen throughout the course of this book. We looked at the covenant that God had established with his nation Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy, which required Israel to only serve God and not any other idol. But eventually Israel would break that covenant and then go into exile for 70 years. The book of Ezra then began, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, with the decree from Cyrus, king of Persia, allowing the Jews to be able to return back to their land, ending the exile of 70 years. So tonight, we are going to look at Ezra chapter 2 and 3. You see, you wouldn't believe it from some of the reading, but this is really one of my favorite narrative portions of the Bible because of specifically how careful the returning exiles are to rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem once again. These exiles were the recipients of punishment for serving false idols with a large portion of the nation being born in this exile. So as they return to Jerusalem... They have in their back of their minds the sin of their fathers, how it has caused so much destruction of their home country. They've seen God's punishment on the previous generation, and that sticks with them throughout these two chapters and throughout really the entire book of Ezra. So tonight, I specifically, while we are looking at Ezra 2 and 3, I want us to be focused on how the Jews are worshiping God. So I've titled tonight's sermon, Worship God Faithfully. Each action that the returning exiles make is calculated on how they are going to faithfully worship God. So we will look tonight then at three headings. The first heading is, is all of this dealing with worshiping God. The first heading is this, remembering the promise. The second heading is remembering the promise giver. And then finally, the last heading is rejoicing in the promise. So this first heading, let's begin by looking at all of Ezra 2 with this first heading, remembering the promise. Now, some of you will have astutely noticed that a large portion of Ezra chapter 2 consists of a list of a name of families of these returning exiles coming back after Cyrus's decree. The list itself is broken up into sections, including clans, geographical names, priests, Levites, temple servants, descendants of Solomon's servants, and others who couldn't prove their heritage. You see, whenever we come across a big list of names like this in the Bible, we have a tendency as modern readers to completely skip over this list because of the difficult names that we come across and these large numbers that we really can't compute. While it may seem monotonous to read, we need to stop and ask ourselves as readers of this in the modern day, why is this included in scripture? You see, as Christians, we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for us as the people of God. So we are stuck with the question, why is this list in Ezra 2 included? You see, there are a couple of suggestions to the answer that I, that I found during my study of this text. One idea is that this list was used to guarantee land rights for those exiles who were returning home. While practically this would make a lot of sense, there's one explanation that I believe really holds a little bit more weight for us as modern readers. You see, throughout the book of Ezra, the sovereignty of God is a theme that we are constantly going to be running into. 
So instead of this list simply being about receiving land again, we see instead the genealogical ties that this group of Jews has to ethnic Israel. One scholar in answering this question wrote this. He wrote, the genealogies are a guarantee that Israel is not adrift in a vacuum of this present generation, but has security and credentials. And as long as Israel can name names, utter their precious sounds, it has a belonging place that no hostile empire can destroy. You see, the returning exiles are a realization of God's promises. The returning exiles aren't simply a group of people who are claiming the title of Israel for themselves so that they can inherit land for themselves once again. But instead, what we see here is the promise that was given to Abraham in action. Remember, Israel began through one man, the man Abraham. As we saw in Genesis 12, God had promised to make a nation out of Abraham. The list of people that we read earlier is then exactly all of that. That is Abraham's family, pointing to us as the audience that God has stayed faithful to his promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. You see, the exiles themselves realize this fact as a whole and then respond accordingly. Look with me again at the end of Ezra chapter two. Let's read together verses 68 through 70. It says, some of the heads of the families when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem made freewill offerings to the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. You see, after returning back to the homeland, the first thing that some of the heads of the families do is pay homage to what the Lord has done. They gave what they could for the building of the temple so that they could honor God, not only for giving them the promise, but for acting on that promise as well. For the previous generation who constantly ignored God and forgot that he was watching over them, they failed to hold the promises of God near and dear to their hearts. For this new generation of people, they've seen the value of God's promises in action in their lives and have properly evaluated the promises that they have received so that they, de they decided they weren't going to lose everything because they didn't care about these promises like the previous generation but they decided that they were going to hold the promises of God close to their hearts as they should. You see, the promises that God gives to his people are the most valuable thing that any person could have. And this is exactly why the, why the Lord threw the previous generation into exile in the first place. The previous generation took the promises of God for granted, causing the exile to be thrown on them as punishment. But here in Ezra chapter two, we see that the returning exiles have learned their lesson and hope not to fall victim to the same sin once again. They want to keep this land that the Lord has given them and they rejoice 
that they can live in their towns once again. Their hope for the future now rests secure in God's promises. And their giving to the temple is a sign of the work that has happened inside of their hearts and minds. See, once the returning exiles have realized the value of the promises of God, only then would they be able to enter into faithful worship of God. They didn't give their gold and silver to the building of the temple because it was customary or because they felt obligated to do so. They gave their resources to the building of the house of God because of their thankfulness for the things that they have received from God. You see, if we think of God as worship, or if we think of worship of God as a river, then thankfulness is the spring from which that river flows. As we think about the promises of God and remember the things that he has done in the world, in the history of Israel, in the history of the church, as well as what he's done inside of our individual lives, we should be moved to worship God for the great things that he has done. As we just sang a minute ago, to God be the glory, great things he has done. This hymn begins with recognizing how great the things of God are. His promises are great. His mercies are wonderful. His works are amazing. All that he has done, all that he is doing right now, and all that he will do in the future is great and greatly to be praised. So if we then, as a church, are faithfully going to worship our God, we must be thinking about the promises of God and properly evaluating their value in our hearts. Like the returning exiles, we too have seen the tangible and present working of the promises of God in our lives. And you may be thinking, what do you mean? We haven't been delivered from a 70-year exile, but yet we have been delivered from a life of sin and darkness. We have brought, been brought together into this church that we are sitting in today. Each of us has a different story of how the Lord has shown his grace to us, how he has redeemed our hearts and saved us from our sins, bringing us together into this church body so that we can praise and glorify our God. From here, we, from here inside of this church, we can devote ourselves to the study of scripture, to the encouraging of one another in our walks with Christ, and we can encourage each other in our worship of God as one people. This is one of the many tangible outworkings of God's promises that we can see in front of us today. So then our responsibility as the people of God should be to hold these promises near to our hearts and properly evaluate how special they are. If we don't, then we will be like the previous generation that caused Israel's exile. Like right now, there is a growing movement inside of the evangelical world of people who deconstruct their faith. They grew up in Christian homes and communities, and as they grow older, they walk away from the faith and fill the holes in their hearts with postmodern and pluralistic philosophies. You see, God is no longer the object of affection in their hearts, but instead they trade the promises of God for worldviews that our culture pushes, 
thinking that they are gaining enlightenment, but they're losing their life in the process. We then must hold dear to the promises of God. We shouldn't take them off, where we shouldn't take them for granted or pass them off as unimportant, but we need to hold them dearly and never underestimate their importance. When we are saved, we need to be committing our lives to living like Christians, where we call out sin and unrighteousness for what it is, where we dedicate ourselves to living holy lives, where we present our bodies before God as holy and living sacrifices. The promises of God should be the greatest treasure to our longing soul. And how we value that treasure really shapes how we live our lives. This means that we need to be placing importance on being present for church gatherings. We need to be cutting off and getting rid of anything that causes us or tempts us to sin. We need to be creating new habits inside of our lives that show glory and honor to our God. For the, for the returning exiles, this meant giving to the temple in, the, in reverence for God. But for us right now, this means giving up to clinging to our old sinful selves and instead clinging to God's promises and clinging to salvation in Christ and letting that motivate how we live. You see, remembering the promises of God is an essential component in our worship. But it is not the only thing that motivates our worship. While the gift of life in Christ is a wonderful thing and something we need to be thankful for, we aren't only thankful for this promise, but we are also thankful for the promise giver. Now let's look right now at Ezra 3 verses 1 through 7 where we will look at number 2, remembering the promise giver. You see, in the first half of Ezra 3, we begin with a little bit of a time skip from where we were in Ezra 2. The exiles have now been settled in their towns for about six months when they decide to gather in Jerusalem for the seventh month. The people were finally settled and it was time to get rebuilding, but there was one order of business that they needed to take care of. The seventh month in the Jewish calendar, if you didn't know, is an important celebration that we know as the Feast of Booths or as some translations render it, the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast was a celebration of the wonderful things that the Lord has provided over the past year, similar to how we celebrate harvest here in the church. And since this is the first time that the exiles are able to celebrate this feast back in their land, they slow down from their other work that needs to be done in order to honor the Lord for the great things that he has provided. Read with me again verses 2 through 5 of Ezra 3. It says, Then arose Jeshua the son of Josadak with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. 
And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. You see, when I read a section like this, I can't help but be amazed by the decision that the returning exiles are making. Of course, it seems obvious to celebrate God's provision after experiencing deliverance in this way. And to that, I would, I would agree that that's a good thought to have. But the thing that amazes me is the fact that the returning exiles decided to build the altar of the Lord first before even beginning to rebuild the temple. Imagine the anticipation that the exiles must have been feeling to return back to their homeland, to be able to rebuild the temple which they held in such reverence. But instead of going off and building the temple immediately, they decided to stick to the law of Moses that the previous generation had completely abandoned and offer burnt offerings to the Lord, celebrating that the promise giver has come, that he has brought them out of exile and back into their homeland. They they correctly prioritized their worship of God over everything else that they wanted. Their worship of God was also at risk of their own safety. Verse three says that fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, yet they continued to worship anyways. Once the exiles have seen the promises of God come into fruition once, they can know that they can rely on God once again. So they continued to worship despite any opposition that came their way. I mean, think about it. Their enemies must have looked at them and saw how weak they were. They didn't have an army. All their homes and all their buildings were still in the process of being rebuilt. They didn't even have a temple where they could worship their God. Yet because the exiles had their eyes focused on their God, they were able to continue worshiping our God as the promise keeper. Because once our God keeps his promise one time, we know that he keeps his promise for all time. There is nothing that could stop them from worshiping God because this was God's will for them. As they dwelt on the promises of God, the exiles turned their eyes toward the one who gave them the promises and then worshiped him. They knew that once they've seen God be faithful in the past, that they can trust him to be faithful in the present as well as in the future. Their gaze was focused on God who is above all things and works through all things. You see, this act of looking up towards the promised giver is the second part of the foundation of what worshiping God should be like. We look at the things that the Lord has done and then at the same time look at the Lord who has graciously done his works in this world. We then, as God's people in the church today, We need to keep our gaze focused solely on God, especially as we are walking through this world. If we are going to live as God's people, if we are going to worship him for the things that he has done, we can't be taking quick glances at him when it's convenient or when we feel like we have to. We need instead to have our gaze focused solely on our promise giver, 
who has dealt so graciously with us. Any worship that fails to keep its gaze focused solely on God fails to meet the actual purpose of worship. We can't praise our God if we are not focused on him. That would be like trying to have a conversation where one person is looking only at their phone with headphones in. That's not a conversation at all. Just like worshiping God isn't actual worship if we aren't fully focused on our God. The The job then for the believer today is to figure out how best we can focus on our God so we can worship him. This means that we as Christians need to be discerning on how we are worshiping God and what we are using to worship him. You see, one of the easiest examples that I can think of in our modern day is worship music. You see, when you listen to, your, to a song, I want you to ask yourself these three questions. What is the song about? Who is the main, who is the main subject of the song? And who is the one being honored by the song? You see, there's a lot of bad worship in our modern day that may seem God-honoring, but as soon as you start to study the lyrics, as soon as you start to look at it, it seems to be elevating and worshiping us as people rather than worshiping our God. It's those types of songs that we should be staying away from and instead picking songs that are theologically rich and deep, praising our God and fixing our eyes on him. You see, we as believers need to be fixing our eyes on Christ as the complete outworking of the promises of God. And we can do that by evaluating how we worship. Our goal should be to be completely and utterly focused on the promise giver. By this, we will be able to worship our God faithfully. Now come with me and look at the second half of Ezra, of Ezra 3 where we will see number three, rejoicing in the promise. You see, the second half of Ezra 3 has to do with the rebuilding of the temple. It has been another seven months since the first half of Ezra 3 and now things are finally, be, finally ready for the temple to be made. Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the leaders of the exiles, appoint more leaders to supervise the construction of the temple, which we see in verses 8 and 9. But finally, in verse 10, we see the builders lay the foundation of the, of the house of the Lord. After 70 years in exile and a year of settling back in the land, the temple is finally ready to be reconstructed causing the entire nation to celebrate such an amazing occasion. They came together with a loud voice and praised God with a, with, with, for, for blessing them with the second temple, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. They praised God, not with an unemotional, reserved worship, but with an incredibly passionate praise rooted in their journey from exile to deliverance back to their homeland. The temple has been restored again. And they cannot help but pour out their praise for the promise giver who has given them such an amazing gift. And this right here is where we get to one of my favorite parts of Ezra. Read with me again verses 12 and 13 of Ezra 3. 
It says, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. You see, in verse 12, we see what I believe to be one of the most interesting emotional reactions in all of Scripture. For the returning exiles who had seen the first temple in its former glory, they couldn't help but weep over the fact that the second temple was being built on a smaller scale. This new temple was much simpler than the former, and this causes lament in the old generation. You see, seeing the second temple reminded them of why the first temple had to be destroyed in the first place. Because of their sin and their disobedience to God, they were forced into exile, and the old temple was destroyed. This new temple, then lacking the intricacy and beauty of the first temple, stood as a monument to their sin. But even though it would remind the past generation of their sin, God would still use this new temple for the redemption of his people. You see, the prophet Haggai, who's prophesying around that time, uh, talks about the new temple and the coming glory. He writes this in Haggai 2, verse 9. He says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You see, this prophecy would take about 500 years to be fulfilled because the Messiah, Jesus, would walk in the courts of this temple. He would be dedicated as a child to the Lord in this temple. The promised peace that God had given to his people would be in this temple. And the glory of the Lord would shine forth from this man, Jesus. You see, the greatest promise that God has ever offered to his people is redemption through Christ, his son. This is the promise that we as a church should be called and are called to rejoice in, that our sin has been paid for and that we have been redeemed When it comes to rejoicing in the promise, there are two things that we can learn from these exiles. The praise of the old and the new generation are marked by two very distinct things. And that is praise for our holy God and lament over our own sin. Their cries joined together and could not be distinguished as one emotion brings out the intensity of the other. You see, as we look up to God and praise him, we can't help but notice our own sinfulness that still lives inside of us. Once we start to grasp how sinful we are and how alone we would be in our sin if not for God, we can then look up at our God who has promised us a redeemer in Jesus so that we may be freed from this sin. When we rejoice in the promise, we must hold these, true, these two truths in tension with one another. This allows us to worship God for who he is and taste the full sweetness of the promise 
that he has given to us as his people. So tonight, as we close, I really want to practice this type of worship with you all. The last hymn that I picked for us to sing this evening is Come Thou Fount. The song is one of my favorites because it really does a great job at holding this theological tension that we are sinners in need of grace and that we have a God who gives us this grace. You may wander from the God that you love or you may have yet to even know him personally, but know that God's streams of mercy are never ceasing. There's forgiveness from your sin and reconciliation in Christ. Jesus sought us as we wandered away from him. He rescued us from, his, from our present danger and he saved us by his precious blood. So if you have tasted this grace, then I would invite you tonight to sing loudly and worship the God whom you adore. But if you do not know God, if you, if you haven't been saved, then please, I would really encourage you to listen and look at the lyrics of this song and look around you at all of us who are singing our praises to God for his goodness and for his mercy. Then ask yourself, why wouldn't I want to taste this goodness for myself? And fall before Jesus, repenting of your sin, gaining new life in him. Then join together with us as we praise our holy God. Everyone, worship God and worship God faithfully for our God is worthy to be praised. Amen.